Yeah, let me, let me pray for us, guys, and then let's jump right back into it so we're faithful with our, with our time. Father, thank you for the gospel and the chance that we have this afternoon to continue our study of hermeneutics and, and interpreting the Bible. So we just pray that you would guide our time as we engage with the questions about the methods and the nature of your word. And uh, thank you for these people and, and just the friendships that we have begun to develop and just the fact that we are all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in your notes, I'm not sure what page it's on, but at least for me it's the section that's entitled Perspectives of Interpretation. What page is that on? Perspectives of Interpretation. That's second page. we got a little ways to go. Perspectives of Interpretation. So I'm going to give you, this is a lengthy section. I, I'm not going to give you a ton of examples from the text. I might, I might look at one or two, but I want to just talk through some theoretical stuff with you, right? So I gave you that real long example on John, and now I want to just start thinking through some of the aspects. So here's one aspect, um, and it would be that we could call it the behind the text aspect. Another, another way of thinking about it, you could think through the lens of the author. Like the perspective the author has, the awareness and the knowledge that the author has. And even a third way of explaining it is in, in the parentheses, we could call it historical excavation, right? History as truth bear. So here our focus is on the historical, social, and cultural realities of the text. I don't feel like we need to spend a lot of time defining this because not only did we already talk about this a little bit, but we also already looked at how that works out in John 3. So this would bump into our earlier example of who are the Pharisees? What are the rulers of the Jews? What are some social engagement expectations between religious leaders in the temple in John 2 and Jesus who's claiming a religious authority? Those are the simple the examples. In this case, we might be thinking about author, date, aspects of sources, key terminology, the political situation. Now, I, I want to give a cautionary note. We make mistakes when we treat the text merely as evidence to reconstruct what really happened. Remember that tension that I, I gave to you between text and events. I don't want you to lose that, right? This is a real challenge anytime you start dealing with historical details because it'd be real easy to make this historical reconstruction. You know what I mean by that word? Like you've got this image in your mind historically of what happened and the image in your mind is actually dictating to you more the meaning and the message of the communicative action than the text itself. The moment that happens, that's a mistake. You're only using historical data to enlighten the text. That's what it's for. It's like a flashlight to aim at, the, at, the, at, at where you're walking. It is not to be interpreted as something in and of itself. And you want to be careful there. And I could even give you some dangers associated with mishandling or ignoring behind the text perspectives. Here's one danger. One danger would be that you just simply ignore it altogether. This, this could be called under-constructing the setting. Like, you're not even thinking about the fact that the textual situation is very different than what it is now in Jakarta or for me in Chicago. You're not even realizing that. If we ignore or minimize the importance of the original context, 
the default position is to fill it in with our own. You, you, you make your own assumption. You put your contextual cultural issues and you kind of plant those in and around the words of the text and you think that your cultural context is the lens through which the words on the page should be read. That would be to under-construct. You need to do some construction work to understand the historical situation. But a second danger, and this would be the opposite, is elevating the background above the meaning of the text. This would be over-constructing the setting. Much of modern scholarship often is, is more concerned with what happened than what the text says. We can too easily assume that the biblical authors buy into the same worldview as the surrounding context. You know where this is a little tricky? Let me give you an example. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is a good example of this. Like there are some interpreters, there's a guy by the name of John Walton, who I think is coming to Indonesia. When is he coming to Indonesia? In fact, he's in the bathroom. Come on out, John. But, uh, <laughs> but John Walton, what's that? But John Walton argues that Genesis 1 and 2, which is obviously an important text and a difficult text, should be read through the lens of the ancient Near East. Now, in some ways, this is actually helpful. But he actually lets Genesis get dropped and shredded into the ancient Near Eastern context, and he no longer lets the, lets the Bible speak in an otherworldly way. He doesn't let the, the Bible doesn't have a chance to push against the culture in which it was written. But you see the Bible do that all the time. In, in, for example, the New Testament, there's often questions and debates regarding complementarianism and egalitarianism in the New Testament, right? And you could read Paul and see some real patriarchal kind of aspects of his ministry. And yet he was very much making space for women in certain ways that push against the cultural patriarchy of his day. In my opinion, without denying a level of complementarity, but still in a way that expanded the understanding of the role of women that pushed against what the culture of his day was saying. So if you're not letting the text be able to speak into the context, if you over-construct the setting, then all of a sudden the text isn't able to speak. A third danger is simply the wrong information. Like, if I'm wrong about Nicodemus, I got a real problem with my interpretation. Like, that could if I'm right, that's a different reading than maybe all of you or most of you ever heard. If I'm wrong, then that is really dictating the text in some unhelpful ways. If John Walton is right about Genesis 1 and 2, man, that's really important and helps us think about creation, evolutionary creationism and orthistic evolution and things like that in a real helpful way. But if he's wrong, then he is distorting two of the most important chapters, the prologue of all of Scripture, and that's a real danger. So you want to be, as much as it's exciting to think through the historical cultural context and understanding those things, you want to realize there's a real danger. It's, 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 I guess it's like with your children or when you do have children or whatever the story would be, you want them to be able to cut their own meat and use a knife in the kitchen, but you're, and it's a useful tool, but you're also well aware that when your young children start using knives, you get a little nervous. Because the same thing that's useful for cutting the vegetables or preparing the meal is also something that could, they could hurt themselves if they're not careful with. You kind of want to treat these historical cultural construction in that way. The, the last danger I would say is 
we don't want to confuse background information with application. So notice what I didn't do. I didn't tell the John 3 story, give you all this details about Nicodemus, and then make the story about him. I used that information to help you see the text. I used the information to help you understand how the gospel was being communicated in that harsh interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. I didn't make it about Nicodemus. If, If you walk away more enthralled with your knowledge of Nicodemus than you are with what the text is communicating, then either you were listening too much to the historical information or I, the teacher, was making that the point of the text. That's not the point of the text. Just as the flashlight is not the point of your visibility, it's simply there to help you see where you're walking, right? So what? Using the past to understand the text, the, 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 the wise interpreter, again, we've, I use this analogy right before lunch, but now you're intoxicated with calories, so you will even hear it less. The wise interpreter lives in two worlds. You live in the ancient biblical world and the modern world. These two horizons comprise the alternating perspectives of the perceptive interpreter, right? So you need to live in both those worlds. And because our present culture has molded how we understand things, we risk fashioning our perception of the biblical message in terms of our way of life if we don't understand historical cultural context. So that's, that's the first perspective of interpretation the behind the text, or the authorial view. Here's the second one. It's in the text, right? So if behind the text is, is me kind of, and maybe I should even draw it up in just a, a, silly, a silly or simple way. If this is the text, and, and, he, and you're, the reader is here, and you could tell I was an art major in college, um, you, know, you, you want to have behind the text, right, so that as you're reading the text, you make sure that the words of the text, the things spoken about, are matching the context. And you simply just realize that the biblical author is assuming historical things. Again, the example I used here is, I'm still going to pronounce it wrong, the Manas or whatever, right? There's a lot, I know nothing about that other than I drove by. I even asked Gray and he wouldn't even tell me, right? So maybe it's a national secret. I don't know. But the point is, whatever it symbolizes, I would need to know. But you have knowledge. I would hope you would have some knowledge about what it symbolizes and what it means. So if you're writing and you mention it, if you use it as an illustration or you're talking about it in some way, anybody like me coming from Chicago, Illinois, or the United States would need to figure out what that means so I could understand what your communicative message is doing. That's all you're doing. The behind the text is simply making sure that you can rightly understand what the text is saying and what the text is doing. In the text is a focus not on the author, but on the text itself. In fact, if the behind the text is historical excavation, history is truth bearer, the in the text is textual exposition or literature as truth bearer. And this should be more straightforward to us. This is where we we think through issues I already addressed at the big picture level at the beginning. You think through things like genre. You do things like word studies. Uh, An example would be the way that I... And somebody asked the question, I forget who, one of you guys back there, but about the darkness, I think you asked, or the night, Nicodemus coming at night. That's a word study, isn't it? Like, I actually didn't go behind the text to figure out what night meant. 
I actually just went in the text. I'm just like, how does John use night and darkness? Like, I never even had to make it a historical thing. It was all entirely how the text defined the use of the word. And then I let the text's meaning explain it. This would be grammatical study. I gave you the example early on about Ephesians 1 and about the work of the Spirit and your belief. And I even tried to explain that, and this is more complex, but the Greek grammar is actually not giving some kind of a time chronology, as if you believe and then you get the Spirit. In fact, arguably, both of those things implicitly are happening simultaneously, that the work of the Spirit is what facilitates belief. Now, fair enough, you would need other texts and a larger theology to to understand fully what that means. But notice, when I made that explanation, I was using grammar. Now, I was using grammar from the Greek text, not the English, but notice that's an in-the-text kind of understanding. Even something like intertextuality is significant. Intertextuality is when I am using the text as a whole. I'm letting... When I, when I was giving the John 3 example, John mentions Numbers 22. And so I reminded you of the Numbers 22 story, and then I brought that right back into John. So it's not like I was actually going behind the text. The text includes not just the example I gave you earlier, the Gospel of John. It includes the whole canon. Remember, reading the whole Bible is one big story that facilitates some meaning. But, but just like I gave you some warnings with historical context, let me give you some warnings with literary context. First, each statement, everything that is said in the text, must be understood according to its natural meaning in the literary context in which it occurs. So then you have to do some work to make sure that you're rightly interpreting every phrase, every statement in light of its context. A second thing, and here's a, here's, a, here's a quick saying. I learned this, one of you mentioned the other night, D.A. Carson. This is what a guy named D.A. Carson used to say in the classes I took with him. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Did everybody get that? A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. He used to say that all the time. Right? This is an extension of that first warning about the natural meaning of a statement in its literary context. Before listing any verse in support of a position, you should first check the literary context to make sure that the passage is about the same subject and really does have the meaning that proves that passage's point. A a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. I just want to be very careful that we're letting the larger meaning of a sentence or a statement the larger contextual gravity around it explaining that. You do the same thing with words all the time. In English, if I say trunk, I could be talking about a tree. In America, I could be talking about the back of a car. If it was Britain, I would have said the boot, right? I could be talking, in America, I could be talking about like a chest, like a wooden trunk of some sort. Right? I mean, it could, it could be talking about the trunk of an elephant. The only way you know how that is being used is by the rest of the context. If all of a sudden I'm at a, talking about a zoo and about animals, and I say, what is a trunk? You're probably thinking elephant. You wouldn't be thinking car. 
Right? The context would do that would explain that with words. You do the same thing with clauses and sentences, and you're just aware of that. A second example, a second or a third warning is this: the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error. Like larger passages have a built-in literary context. There's already a context there. If it's too small of a text, uh, there's, there's just a risk. Shorter passages don't have that context. Normally speaking, the paragraph constitutes the basic unit of thought in prose. Again, just dealing with this, this kind of last warning, be very aware of the difference between text and events. I really would love, and I feel like, as I've seen in students in the past, that's a hard category to get in your mind. Because just for whatever reason, since modernity, other reasons, historical emphases, we often read a text and we're thinking in our minds of some historical event. And you need to work hard to let the text do the teaching. Let the text create the image for you. Like, don't just try to think of what may have been happening and reconstruct as if you could have a movie scene or something. And I say that for a couple reasons. One is, sometimes the text leaves information out because it's trying to communicate something based on what it leaves out. For example, in the Gospel of John, the mother of Jesus is never named. And you'd think, that's kind of strange. I mean, she's a major character, and, and, and she's a major character in the, in the Synoptic Gospels. Here's, here's what I think is the main reason. In the Gospel of John, the Gospel does a contrast between the mother of Jesus and God the Father. And the reason that it doesn't mention Mary is because when it wants you to think of the mother, when it wants you to think of Mary, it doesn't want you to think of her person. It wants you to think of her office, her role, her title. Because the entire gospel is trying to say Jesus is submitting to his heavenly Father. That's the contrast. And, and the, the, great, the, the clearest example of that is in the beginning of John 2, the wedding in Cana, when the mother of Jesus kind of comes to him and pursues him to provide some wine. And she basically is, he's basically rebuking her at that point, And he's saying, I must do the will of the one who sent me. Like he's showing the contract. So rather than the, the text wanting you to think of Mary the person, it's wanting you to think of Mary the position holder, mother, so that it's contrasted well with the father. That might be a small little nuance, but when you see that happen throughout the gospel several times, you begin to see that the gospel is directing you. So you shouldn't then, then just reconstruct everything you know about this person. Well, her name is Mary, and her husband was Joseph, and etc., etc. Like, what it leaves out, let it leave it out. What it doesn't tell you, let it, let, just listen to how it's guiding you. Let the text grab your hand. And, and you follow it exactly where it goes so that you see all the nuances of the text. In essence, it's just kind of a, I'm exhorting you just to be very careful readers of the text and to note things like the context. Some, some levels of literary context would include some of these things. You, 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 would have things like, you would have things like semantics, and those are listed there for you in your notes, like word meanings, grammar, syntax. Uh, you would have the larger literary unit, like a paragraph or a chapter, a series of chapters. You'd have the book as a whole. So this would be like, when, I, when I'm talking about night in John, 
I'm not just talking about night in John 3. I was talking about night or darkness throughout the whole gospel. You could have a series of books. Like maybe you could use the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Maybe you could use all of Paul's letters. Maybe you could use the wisdom literature or all four gospels. You could use either Testament and ultimately you could use the canon of Scripture. Let me give you, let's look at one example in Luke 15. You want to turn to Luke 15 with me? I'm going to ask you one question. I want you to answer it before we get there. The parable is often called what? What is this parable called? I can't hear anybody. What's Luke 15 called? I heard somebody say prodigal son. Right? Which son is the prodigal? What's that? Younger one. How many think the younger son is the prodigal son? Just be honest. Like, sure. Because it, 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 which, which one of you think the younger son, or have been taught, blame it on somebody else. Blame it on CCC. You know. What's that? How do you define prodigal? Yeah, that's a good question. But I'm just going to answer it. Let me ask the questions here. Do if how many of you up till now thought that the story was out about the younger brother? I want to tell you you're wrong. And I want to show you why. Let me show you. Luke 15. You ready? We got to go quicker this time, otherwise we'll be here till I'm supposed to be in Chicago. Uh, I promise I'll go quicker couple things it's a it's a it's a it's actually a collection of parables parables couple things you know again this is where genre comes in this is an in the text reading right so i'm looking at the text and i'm thinking through content analysis what am i thinking i'm thinking okay what's the genre parables what are some things to note okay here's a key clue there's often context given at the beginning of the parable sometimes outside the parable that becomes really important in this case it's really important Second point, and this is really key, usually the point of the parable is not in the beginning, but the end. Now, there's giving you a clue right there. Usually the punchline, kind of like a joke, isn't in the beginning. It comes at the end. So just knowing those two things, look at Luke 15 with me, right? Here, the, 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 the narrator, Luke, actually puts the parables in a historical context. What is Jesus doing? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So what's going on? Jesus is hanging out with sinners. And these religious teachers are mad and even rebuking him for that. So he's going to counter them with a parable. Not just one, but three, two short ones and then a long one. Here's the first one. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. 
Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, a couple things you see. Parables exaggerate. Like, probably a shepherd's thinking, ah, I lost one. I'm not going to leave 99 in the open field. But even still, the point is not to reconstruct shepherding techniques, but to say that a good shepherd cares for the lost ones too. Right? Like, it just it gets the point. One person described a parable as an imaginary garden with a real toad. So a parable has an imaginary aspect to it, but there's a real point. The key emphasis was you pursue the lost. Think of the context. Jesus is hanging out with lost people, and the religious people don't like it. And his first parable says, what should you be doing? Pursuing the lost. And notice how the parable ended. It was when he found the sheep, what did the shepherd do? He called together his friends and neighbors and wanted to throw a party. And he's expecting that they would rejoice with the lost sheep. And you can be like, how stupid is that, dude? It's a little sheep. Doesn't Ignore that. Imaginary garden with a real toad. The point is, we should be celebrating. Not judging the lost, but celebrating the pursuit of them. Second parable. Almost exactly the same, except instead of a sheep, it's a coin. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Notice, I mean, just see this as being an analogy of evangelism and pursuing people, right? You're not like, hey, what stupid coin? I don't care about you. No, you're looking for it. You light a lamp, you're sweeping the ground. Think of like a mud you know, house, not, like a, not with tiles or wood or stone like you might have, or easily could get caught under the dust, and you're actually being that detailed to try to find the coin. And when she's found it, what does she do? She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Next story. Prodigal son. First you lose a sheep. Then you lose a coin. In this case, Jesus makes it more, more personal. Now you lose a son. Notice how the parable, this third one, lines up perfectly with the other two. Something was lost, right? The, the father pursues ridiculously for this son. He speaks to him. When the son comes back, he runs to him. Like people might mention using historical background information, right? They may argue something like running would have been a sign of shame and receiving back without due kind of penance of some sort or payment would have been unworthy by the son taking the inheritance some have argued it was as if he wanted his father dead all of that couldn't should be true but remember it's imaginary garden there's but there's a real toad in it the imaginary garden is whatever the father is or isn't doing like the woman and like the shepherd when he sees the son he pursues he brings the son back what does he want to do he wants to celebrate look at what it says 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. 
and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Do you see how all three parables have that? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, after the first two parables, you should realize what should the response be? Everybody, not just the person who found the coin or the person who found the sheep or the person who found the son. Everybody should rejoice when something or someone who was lost is found. Here for the first time, note, at the end of the parable, do you see the first difference? Here is where the point of the parable is happening. Not the first part, the second. To be honest with you, if the younger brother is the prodigal, by the end of the story, he's already found. In this parable, the one that remains the prodigal is actually the older brother. And notice how that perfectly fits the context introduced by the narrative. Remember, l- read it. If we jump, if you jumped right to this parable of the prodigal son, if you didn't read the other two parables, and even maybe more importantly, if you didn't read those first two verses in Luke 15, you've completely lost your context. And all you're thinking about is this beautiful story of repentance. And I'm not trying to say that one of the aspects of meaning of this text isn't repentance and returning to the Christ and all of that and the wayward son. All of that can be and should be used as teaching from this text. But if you want the contextual thrust, if you want to see the purpose of Luke 15, it's now, beginning in what verse? I'm getting so old I need reading glasses. Finally, verse 25, right? That you finally, you finally get to it. Now his older son was in the field. He's working hard. He's the faithful brother, right? He's like the Pharisees. He's the, he's the Pharisees grumbling about this lazy, good-for-nothing, selfish brother. And as he came near and he drew to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants. Notice he didn't go in. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received them back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice what he did. He didn't even call him my brother. Like, look at the words. He disassociates himself from him. Rather than celebrating as if he had found something too, if something had returned to him, he disassociates. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, Son, here's the point. Like, here's the point of the parable. And which son is it talking to? The younger son? No. The prodigal son. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Notice what the dad says. Your brother. He doesn't say my son. He pushes back on his own son's language. This, your brother was dead. And he's alive. He was lost and is found. Now, go back and read verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Who are they like? The older brother. So thoughts. Thoughts or comments on, on what I just talked about. You got to have some thought, some comment, some question. Everyone see the moves I made? The way I put it in, all I did was put it in, notice I didn't use background material necessarily. I, I didn't have to. I never even had to leave. All I had to do was pay attention to the details of the text. That's it. That's all I did. I just read the I just read the text. But I was very aware of context. I was sensitive to the flow of the story. If I had just started with the larger parable, I would not have had enough context to know that there was already a pattern being set up that the third one broke from. Lost, found, rejoiced. Lost, found, rejoiced. Lost, found, no rejoicing. You're saying because of how Christ is normally perceived? Yes. Yeah, I, I think that would be a, I think that'd be a misreading. I think Jesus. And I tried to show you that with the Nicodemus, but I, I could show you example after example. In fact, to be honest with you, almost every encounter of Jesus with the authorities, he was being challenged. Like, it wasn't kind of a, hey, Jesus, you know, to who should we pay taxes? I mean, I got to figure out my taxes this year. And no, I mean, he was, he was trying to be cornered. They were distorting. They were seeing if he would align with Rome so they could get him in trouble with the priests or if he'd align with the priests and they could get him in trouble with Rome. Like, he was always being attacked. And honestly, I think we've, we've misread the, the, you know, the, the force, the strength, the authority that he engaged his opponents with uh, in a way that just reflects that God has a right to have a righteous anger. Not in a way that's sinning. Not in a, not in a, but and notice, even when he was righteously angry against Nicodemus, for 13 verses, by verse 14, he's completely taking the shame upon himself, right? And it's almost in that contrast when you see the way he's attacked and the way he has the right, and every single time he's winning, he's winning, he's winning, and then he goes to the cross. And it would look like he's losing, but even there, the cross is where his ultimate victory is found. It, in what looks like a moment of weakness is actually his clearest display of strength. 
But, but, but just, I, I'm just hoping that even just as this one day together that you've learned a couple examples of text just to let the narrative do its work. Like really look at the details. Think through the form, the genre, right? And I've chosen some real common texts. I mean, we could go to a bunch in the Old Testament and, and in the Old Testament, and we're not going to have a ton of time for that today, but in the Old Testament, an issue that hopefully Gray or some others will cover another time is just you're tr- you, you need to understand a bit more the redemptive context. Like it's a little easier in, your, in the New Testament to try. It's a little trickier in the Old Testament to do that. But if anything, I'm hoping that you're sensing just the centrality of the text, right? You're not going beyond the text. You're not even, not, not even going too much behind the text. You are letting the text do the work and you're showing it. So any argument I made from John 3, I could show you from words on the page. Any argument I made from Luke 15, I am showing you. I'm not saying, well, here's what I think is happening based upon farming techniques and shepherding. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. I'm actually just saying, look at verses 1 and 2 and now read with me. And in the end, how many of you think the older brother is the prodigal son? A few more. Yeah. If you still don't, keep your hand down because I don't want to... All right, third, in front of the text. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and it's a, I mean, it's a beautiful story. Like, it should be used, Jesus taught it, and it should be used to describe this process of repentance and returning. I mean, it, and it should be. It's in the Bible. Uh, the thing is, here's, here's what I wonder. I, I think part of it may be, I mean, connecting what you're saying, it is easier for us to see ourselves as the, you know, the repentant younger brother because as believers, we've all had those kind of experiences as we came to faith in Christ. Here's my concern, and I can only speak more about my American Christian context than I can in yours. But man, when Jesus, if you look at Jesus in the Gospels, he attacked the religious leaders and the Pharisees way more than he attacked the pagan Romans. Like if you just look at number of amount of space he spent critiquing people he basically critiqued the so-called religious people more than he critiqued like the atheist pagans like he's not afraid to deal with them and he does but more time in the new testament is spent on critiquing the heart of the self-righteous religious people than on those who are clueless and what i've noticed in my american context is christians can be real good ripping on the culture like they can just rip on the secularism of culture. They can rip on other religions. They can rip on, like in our country, things like issues of marriage or gay marriage or transgender or whatever issue you want to bring up that you would say the Bible is against. They are good at that. The funny thing is the Bible states in Genesis 3 at the beginning that without God you're going to be lost, right? I mean, from the beginning we should know people are sinners. What, what it's harder for us to see is that we can be like the older brother. We don't realize that we used to be the younger brother and then we're Christians for a few years and now we're like the older brother. But all we keep hearing in this text 
is how beautiful it is that I've returned to the Father. And what we don't realize is, is that we are looking down on the lost rather than like the shepherd or like the woman or like the father pursuing people who don't know or have left the fold because we love them. And when they return, even if they've hurt us and dishonored our Lord, if they have returned to Christ or come to Christ, we rejoice. Because it's not just about our salvation, it's about the salvation of others. And I I feel like this text would speak well, at least in my context, to an American church that can be pretty self-righteous and not see it. And think they're fighting culture wars all the time. And not see that they really, all of a sudden, rather than loving the lost and pursuing the lost, they're debating the lost. They're fighting the lost. They're trying to separate from the lost rather than pursuing the lost. And I feel like verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15 speak just as much to some of the people in my own Christian context in my country as it did in Jesus' day. All right, let's do, let's do some in, in front of the text. And, and, here's, and here's just kind of my beautiful artwork, right? You've, now you've got, you also have a, a front position, right? You have an inside position, the text. You have a behind the position that is explaining the text. And then you have an in-front perspective. You can't go back here and live. You can can only reconstruct. You can only use some historical resources to determine what exactly uh, is behind the text and what it means. But you're already living in a context. You're living in a historical social context. So in front of the text focuses on readers. Or again, I could say it this way. It's engaging the matter. Reader as truth bearer. And, and, and let me talk about a few things. First, do texts have meaning in themselves? That is, meaning that is objectively there, so to speak. Or is meaning somehow created afresh through the interaction between the reader and the text? That is, if there's no reader, does the text have a meaning? Or does meaning only come when the reader applies it. We would want to argue that the text has meaning. The reader is actively involved in the task of reading. Actively might just mean faithfully noting the context. Thinking through the historical background. But it would be a mistake to think that I hold the meaning and then I can make the text mean whatever I want it to mean. That would be a mistake. That would make me the focus of the meaning and not the text. We come to Scripture with some foundational theological convictions. As Christians, we believe that the Bible should not be read like any other book. General hermeneutics will only take us so far. I come to Scripture with a conviction that it is both a human document, but it is also a divine document. That the meaning of the text is directly connected to the author's intention in that every section of Scripture must be understood in light of the whole. Like usually I'm not connecting Harry Potter books with Plato, with a speech Martin Luther King wrote, right? I'm not connecting diverse authors and books. With the Bible, I kind of do that. I take these books and believe that with diverse authors in different cultures, in different times, God was writing one book, one canonical book of Old and New Testament that has a cumulative message in which I'm reading. That is a theological conviction that cannot be brought to any other book. There's no other book that can be read or should be read 
in that way. That isn't denying I still bring to the text historical understanding, understanding background and social cultural issues, understanding genre and literary, just like I would any other text. But I'm doing more than, not less than a normal text, but more than based upon my theological convictions about what the Bible is. Remember that very first thing. Before you can answer how to interpret the Bible, you're asking who wrote it and what it is, right? And those questions change the nature of what Scripture is. And what do you do with your location as a reader? Let me, let me talk about that for a minute. First, you have to acknowledge your presuppositions and your pre-understandings. In essence, if you're going to be a good reader, as much as you need to have a, a very careful look at the text, you probably want to have some kind of a mirror so that you're able to understand your own context. It's amazing to me, and, and many of you have been to the U.S., but it's amazing to me how different political parties, Christians in different political parties, can so easily see support for their political party in the Bible. If you're for universal health care, you can find Christians who think it's on every page of the Bible. If you're for free market capitalism and a free market economy and ownership, and you can just, I mean, I have literally heard so many Christians even argue from the creation of Adam and Eve that that text is speaking about free market economy and capitalism. Like, I've literally heard that over lunch recently, which made me a little sick to my stomach. But the point is, notice what they're doing. They're bringing their context into the Bible and they're not aware of their pre-understandings and their presuppositions. What is pre-understanding? Your pre-understanding is, 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 is based upon your experience. And this can change. So I'm guessing your pre-understanding of John 3 and maybe Luke 15 has now changed after today. And honestly, it was easy in the sense of in one day it changed. It's not like it took years and years and years. Your pre-understanding is just based upon your experience and your exposure. The moment you get more exposure and experience, the more that can change. Presuppositions are a bit deeper. Your presuppositions are kind of like your worldview. They're embedded in your cultural context. So, so things like, I've, I've learned a little bit this week about like weddings in Indonesia. And to me, it sounds a little different. Weddings and wedding culture and family expectations and all that, it sounds a little different in this culture than it is in my own. And those things become presuppositions that are just part of the culture you embody. And even though you might know other options out there, they affect how you think. Maybe in your culture, family relations and the importance of family and the control or the direction or the influence your family would have on you in contrast to maybe more individualistic cultures, it is a pre-understanding that you bring with you. It's part of how you see the world. Even though you might have a critical distance in some ways from your cultural context, it affects how you see the world. Pre presuppositions, therefore, change less frequently. No one is totally objective. No one can leave their presuppositions alone. You don't come to the text in a vacuum. I come to the text as a German-Swedish-American. You come to the text as a Chinese-Indonesian or, what, 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 or whatever you come, Australian or whatever it is. You come to the text as a male or a female. You come from a broken family or a good family. Get this, you, you come as a believer or a non-believer, which is very different. Even ability to grasp the text based upon God's Word. 
All of those things affect your reading. So you cannot shed those and read as if you're in a vacuum. So what you need to develop then, secondly, if, if first you need to acknowledge this, secondly, you need to cultivate a cultural awareness of your presuppositions and your pre-understandings. Just a cultural awareness uh, so that you are sensitive. Our pre-understandings can change based upon new reading. Our presuppositions won't so easily. But we should just be open to re-evaluating our presuppositions in light of God's Word. So I ask the question, is meaning controlled by the author? Or is it controlled by the reader? Now, I ask this because in the academic world, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with this, in the academic world, there was a real heavy emphasis on the author a, a couple generations ago, and now it's strongly moved to the reader. So in light of postmodernity and re, what's called something called reader response, meaning is very strongly connected to the reader. The reader brings the meaning to the text and is allowed to have it mean what it wants it to mean. Christian theological understanding would push against that. We, 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 need to be, we are not forced to make a choice between the reader as passive and the reader as creator, right? There is something that is happening in both cases. On the one hand, we now acknowledge the perspectival nature of all readers and readings, while still holding that there is something in the text that actually is communicated to us that we didn't know previously. So this should lead us to be humble readers. We are being faithful as we actively engage with the text. We believe that there is meaning in the text. And yet the same way we are, pa so we're passively receiving that meaning, but we're supposed to actively be pursuing it and be responsible, wise readers. To be a wise reader entails that you are as much interpreted by Scripture as you interpret it. And maybe that would be almost devotionally just a warning for us today. The risk of interpretation is that we put our lab coats on and we interpret the Bible as if we're scientists and we aren't reading the Bible as disciples. And I've seen that risk, especially in those that get more and more education in theology and exegesis and learn the biblical languages, they begin to treat the Bible as if they are the experts sitting over it rather than a true Christian posture of reading is that we are underneath Scripture and sitting under its authority as it teaches in our lives. That's interesting. I mean, hopefully something that's balanced, right? I mean, 
in whatever cultural context. And both of those emphases have, there's truth in both of those emphases, but they need to be balanced. I mean, they almost get back to that distinction between it's a human book that requires human kind of attention, but it's also a divine book that requires divine attention. And hopefully in balanced tension, there is a centered approach to both those perspectives. But that, that's helpful for me to hear. The, the, the emphasis on divine authorship may be in your context, where Gray's right, in, in my context, human emphasis. You have to make a case for the Bible to be read theologically in America. Whereas it's, you're saying that that would be the opposite. Well, and even that the phrasing it, God, how God's speaking to me, what, what's the danger of that, that framing it that way? Like, how, how is that potentially skewing things that we've been talking about today? What do you think? Well, yeah, it, 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 it makes you the central location where meaning is, is, is derived rather than the text itself, right? So it's no longer grounded in textual evidence and support or the, or the thrust of the text. It, it, it's, it's kind of moved away from... Scripture becomes a springboard, a diving board, right? From which you jump into some discovery of meaning in some, I don't know what domain, personal, devotional, work, role, of conversation with the Holy Spirit, right? But the, the, the danger is that you've lost the text in that mix. You've divorced yourself or separated the meaning of the text from the text itself. The same spirit that would be communicating meaning to you, guess what that spirit did? He inspired the Bible, providentially guided its canonical collection, the confessional gathering of support around it, and ministering through it to you week after week for you to have a full life in Christ for then you to all of a sudden say it's unnecessary, it would actually be pitting the Spirit against itself. As if the Spirit's going to communicate to you and not irrespective of the Word through the very Word that the Spirit Himself inspired and, and brings upon you. We'll talk about the role of the Spirit interpretation near the end of our time today. Any other thoughts on any of that? Anybody want to make? All right, let's do, if we can just do this, what is the meaning of a text? And then we'll take a short little break, all right? Where is Scripture's meaning found? Here's, here's a definition to you. Scripture's meaning can be found, can be understood as the communicative act of the author that has been inscribed in the text and addressed to the intended audience for the purpose of engagement. There's a sense of meaning there. And so then I asked the, I asked the question, um, who controls meaning? And I list some things like, is it the author? Is it the reader? And, and, and in one sense, we, we really want to say both. If we emphasize the reader, if we say, okay, the meaning is in the one who comes to the text. The, the, the reader has the meaning already in their head, and they're just going to the text 
to find support for what they already know. And this is called reader response approach, right? The mistake with that, the danger is this, we're not solely in charge. Our activity is balanced by a passivity. That is, as much as we have to be faithful when we deal with the word, we're also supposed to be receiving from it. How can we be bringing all the meaning to the text if we're the ones to be receiving from it? Well, maybe you'd say, yeah, the reader is nothing. The reader brings nothing. It's all author. An author records communicative intentions with verbal arrangements of words, paragraphs, and chapters. So we would say it's what the author was communicating. But there's a problem with this. How do we discern the intent of the author? How do we know what they were thinking? We don't know what they were thinking. We only know what they wrote. And writing requires a reading, and therefore a reader. The author's intention is not a matter of what the author wanted to do, nor of what the author believed might happen as a consequence, but rather of what the author was doing and actually did in the text. Again, you're going to see me pushing you, pushing you, pushing you, pushing you to the biblical text. Read the text. The meaning is in the text. The contrast between text and event, the contrast between balancing reader and author, balancing behind and in front. The text. Go to the text. Let me, let me ask this question and talk about it for a minute. Does a text have a single meaning? Like, does every single text have one meaning, one message, or can we talk about more? I'm going to argue for something called bounded meaning. Okay? So bounded meaning. So this beautiful circle, you can see that? Let's argue that this, the edge of the circle is the boundary. Anything outside that is out of bounds. It's in bounds if it matches what the text is trying to say. And I'll give you a, I'll give you a couple criteria or principles for determining what bounded meaning is. If it's inside the circle, it's fair game that the text in some way is communicating those things. Arguably at the center, the bullseye, the dot, would be the specific main thrust of the text. I put it at the center, but that doesn't mean it's always necessarily easy to grasp. I mean, some might be, but some texts might actually be hard to know. Is this the main thrust of the text? There might actually be a text that's speaking with several thrusts. I mean, even what we looked at at Luke 15. In one sense, that text exaggerates the story part of the younger brother because it wants to talk about evangelism and repentance. In another situation, clearly in the context, the older brother is a main thrust of the text. Would it be wrong to let both brothers? Could you not call that the prodigal sons? You could, couldn't you? It might even be the safest way to do it is the parable, parable of the prodigal sons, plural, and make sure that you let both sons be viewed for what they are. Because the moment you pit against, the, you, you push for the older brother, man, everybody's seen and rightly so, that the younger brother in that story communicates a lot of meaning to readers. It was intended to. So could that variable be talking about actually two sons and not just one? I think it could. So how do you determine that? How do you determine a complex meaning, yet determinate, or what I'm just going to call bounded meaning? Two ways, two principles. The first is the principle of 
coherence. According to the principle of coherence, a proposed implication or application of meaning must be coherent with the meaning of the whole passage. So the first principle, call it coherence, but I'll just say this, it has to fit the text. It's got to fit the text. It coheres with the rest of the text. As long as it fits valid implications, any application you're going to give of Luke 15 has to fit the text. There has to be textual evidence that it flows out of the story. It cannot contradict the meaning of a passage or the meaning of the whole work. The principle of coherence does not require the author to be conscious of all the implications. And, and this is important when we get to the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that it, to, to fit the text, it has to have in view what the author is thinking. Do you think Abraham had in view? I mean, Hebrews explains this. Abraham, Moses fully had in view all the things that would be done through Christ? No way. You can think of the principle of coherence. You can use the example of an iceberg. The part above the water is the meaning that the author is thinking of, but there's an entire part and even a majority of the iceberg that is below the water that, 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 is, that is made of all the implications that the author may not be thinking to when they wrote the text, but that fits what the text is saying. Do you think anybody, when Numbers 22 was written, was thinking of Jesus and Nicodemus? But doesn't Numbers 22 mesh perfectly with the story of Jesus Christ? Was Moses thinking about Jesus when he wrote Numbers 22? Or was he thinking about the event regarding the snakes in Israel? But in the larger canonical context, seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of Numbers 22 fits or coheres with the bounded meaning of the text. In fact, arguably, because Numbers 22 is used by Jesus in John, you could actually argue that if you don't preach Jesus in Numbers 22, you're not even close to the center at all. Like, to, just to make it a moralistic thing, like, you better watch out or you're going to get bit by snakes or God will kill you, or some other weird kind of thing without going to Christ would actually not fit the text at all. The text in its larger canonical context. So in many ways, the principle of coherence gives us the boundary. Does it fit the text? If, if it's outside the circle, it doesn't fit. And it, and, it, and it distorts that principle. The second one is the principle of purpose. And we'll look at an example in a minute. According to the principle of purpose, an implication is more likely to be a part of the meaning of the passage if it fits and contributes to the purpose of the text. So here, if, if fit gives us the boundary, then we'll have the word contribute. Does it contribute to the text? Like, does the actual meaning, can it be shown to contribute to what the text is trying to say? Valid implications correspond with the purpose of which the text is situated. So, um, somebody has a test. They get a big test, right? And they're trying to think about how God can help them with this. And so they quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that correctly used in application to you doing well on an exam? Yes or no? 
Can that be applied to you're about to ask some young lady out and you know it can happen through the power of Christ because she's way, she's, she's way above your pay grade like my wife was. And so you say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as you walk up to her door to ask her to go to dinner. I mean, does, does, that, does, that, does that fit and contribute to the context of Philippians 4.13? Tell me, what do you think? Let's go to Philippians. Everyone's scared to raise their hand now with Bible passages. Starting in verse 10, Philippians 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Notice the context. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Keep going though. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4.13 Tell me, what are part of its bounded meanings? What are appropriate applications for Philippians 4.13? You tell me. You just read the context. Yes, huge. And arguably, that not only fits, but that actually specifically contributes. Like if we were to locate content in difficult circumstances, I mean, it, it would be in this inner circle. I mean, there is overwhelming textual evidence for that being the case. Yeah. That's right. That means I failed the exam and get kicked out of school or, or whatever the case may be. But oftentimes it's actually interpreted the opposite. Like we interpret it as accomplishing something better than what we have now, where notice the context that Jackie seemed to highlight. It's actually helping you endure with something less than what you would want or even need. So rather than something more, it's about satisfaction and contentment with something less. But boy, have we twisted that. Like it's often used to help us procure something more, not to be thankful and grateful and satisfied with something less. It's just amazing how infrequently that verse gets used in its right context. But these are helpful principles. Principle of coherence and purpose or simply does it fit the text? 
And does it contribute to its meaning? And those would be two. Before we take a little break, any, any comments? Any, any, any questions? Yeah. I think that I think that's totally and, and still expository. Yes, I would. As long as it's within the bounded meaning of the text, that is, the text is clearly communicating that that based upon wisdom and judgment regarding situation and context, the only thing I would encourage a pastor to do is in their own local church context to actually maybe show them both. Like r- the real thrust of this text it's talking about this, but this is such an issue in our culture or in our church, or I just sense we need to, that I'm going to talk about another truth communicated in this text, even if it's a more minority one. And you're letting them see that, that you're showing them the bounded meaning, you're showing them that the text is doing the driving, and that there are secondary, you know, anything in this outer layer would be more secondary, but, it's, but it contributes to the text which is why it's probably best to say that every single text could have a dozen, arguably, different meanings, even if very related or nuanced to similar themes that are springing from the text that could be rightly preached in numerous situations. Yeah, I would think so. I would think on Sunday expository preaching would be the main thrust of the text is what is communicated. Now, you could break that up and you could actually spend half your sermon on the main point and then you could, because it's like, a what if it's a pressing issue in your culture? What if it's a pressing issue in your church? Like, I did that recently. Like, we are trying to reform our church to think about church membership and I spoke, even though it was clearly secondary to the text, it was totally related, I preached half the sermon on the main thrust and then I took one of the secondary points and that was the second half of the sermon. But for me, I just needed in that venue to connect the main point to the secondary one to show its importance. And it had a huge impact on our church, even just in the last six months. But I, I did both, right? And I feel like we can just use wisdom, and we're being faithful to the text. The biggest danger is making sure that we're not outside the bounded meaning. But yeah, generally on Sunday morning, I would try to make the main thrust of the text, the expository uh, force that's being communicated? That's a, that's a great question. And I think it actually helps. I mean, you're doing a lot of preaching or others. I think it actually teaches people to read the Bible when, when they're seeing. They're seeing you week after week draw out this is what they're They're learning how to read the Bible by watching you preach every Sunday. Like, it should be one of the best ways they learn hermeneutics as much on Sunday morning as they do from a cohort like this on a Saturday because they're watching you do it. They're just seeing you interpret week after week after week. I feel like my people in my church over after the last four years are reading the Old Testament theologically. And I think that's just because we alternate between Old and New Testament books in our expository preaching. So they've seen me work through Ecclesiastes. They've seen me work through Genesis. We're in Micah right now. Like they've seen me work through these texts and they're seeing the gospel throughout the whole Old Testament. They're seeing the centrality of Jesus Christ. 
and their own small groups or Bible studies have been affected by that. And I've never done, which is kind of, I feel guilty, I've never done a class like this in my own church. But I think they're learning how to read just because I'm trying to show them in small ways what it looks like to read the Bible based on how I'm reading it in, this, in the public sermon. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I would want to say, I, the reason I'd want to say no to that question is because just God is so intentional, right? So I would want to argue that God isn't like, hey, I'm just going to throw in a few cool stories and not mean anything by it, right? But God is actually very intentional with his word. And I would want to say, look more closely or maybe rather than a punctiliar small little thing in the larger section, God's word is communicating something. But I would want to say that every section of God's word is, is com- in, intentional and is communicating something. It might be a grand truth. It might not be some really cool little punchline or something. But no, I would want to say that every aspect of God's Word is very intentional, very purposeful, and it should be read with that expectation. Yeah. Well, part of that's because parables are hard. The, the best book I've read on that is by a guy named Snodgrass, Klein Snodgrass, Stories with Intent. But parables are hard. And so anybody who preaches through Luke, which one day I'll probably do as well, but I haven't yet, will have to preach through all the parables. And uh, yeah, that's just that's a skill. I think there's a skill set there that pastors don't necessarily have. So so they have a hard, they have a hard time. We jump to Romans, we jump to John, we'll jump to but man, you jump through Ecclesiastes, you try to preach through Ezekiel or Leviticus or even certain parables, sometimes it can seem harder to find meaning there, but I believe it's there. And it might be more macro level themes that the rest of scripture is 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 singing that the text is just kind of resonating with, but even still, there's important stuff. But I think that shrewd manager, there's a lot of good stuff there. Maybe I'll talk about that with you later. All right, let's take a, let's take a few minute break.